Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari, and this is the Great Big History Podcast. In this episode, we're doing the 1920s. We're doing the Jazz Age. So, when we finish with World War One, we finish with giant death, giant murder, the destruction of much of Western civilization. I didn't mention it, but then there's uh, the Spanish flu, a giant plague that came through and killed another 20 million people around the world. And, but it's not all doom and gloom, because in America, we have the Jazz Age. Woo, 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 the Jazz Age. So, the Jazz Age. See, people made money from the war. For four years, the United States sent made weapons made made arms for Europe especially for Britain and for France and wasn't fighting so they made all the money didn't have any problem which means there was money to spend so there's optimism and there's consumerism I've got money in my pocket and now I can buy stuff and consumerism is happiness Equals stuff equals better living. Now, this comes out of a bit of the of um, gallows humor because the idea is you're not dead. Look at all the people who are dead. They can't enjoy Wheaties like you can. You can have a better life because you can have stuff. You're not dead. So you might as well enjoy it because if the war doesn't kill you and the flu doesn't kill you, Something else is going to kill you. So why save for a rainy day? That rainy day is going to kill you. So why not just enjoy it? Buy stuff. Have fun. Two, black culture moved north. This is part of what's called the Great Migration. Northern industries needed workers. Needed Workers and immigration, especially from Europe, uh, stopped because of the war. Um, also, in 1924, there was a new um, immigration law that tried to keep America as white as possible. So it tried to lock out um, Southern and Eastern Europeans, uh, Central and South Americans. Uh, there was no African immigration for all intents and purposes um, or much Asian immigration. And so northern industries needing low-skilled, low-cost labor started to hire African-Americans. And this is the Great Migration. And they brought this culture with them, creating and bringing jazz, the blues, the creation of the Harlem Renaissance. New York, St. Louis, Chicago suddenly explode in not only African-American culture, but the mix between African-Americans and white people in a way that really that doesn't happen in the South because of Jim Crow segregation and hadn't really happened in many of the northern places. Because... Jazz, blues, and Harlem Renaissance equals rebellion for white kids. They could do something their parents objected to. 
like the kids in the 60s would smoke marijuana. Like kids in the 80s voted Democrat in 1984. They did things that made their parents mad and going to jazz clubs. Talking like black people, picking up about black people's slang. Allowed for a rebellion of white kids. Rock and roll in the 50s will do the same thing. It also allowed independence for African-Americans, independence for blacks for the first time. They had money, independent money, based on their own uh, creative creation. So what do you get? Well, there are a whole bunch of um, racists who won't like that. New people moving in, changing our neighborhoods, changing our cities, changing our kids. And so the Ku Klux Klan explodes in the North. It existed in the North, but it explodes in the North. In fact, the place with the most people in the Klan was Indiana. How do you like that? Indiana, Northern State fought against the Confederacy. There were people in the Klan in 1925 in Indiana whose grandpappy helped liberate Southern plantations. Think about that for a moment. Just think about that. So you get the explosion of the Ku Klux Klan in the North, racism in the North. Suddenly, for the first time, Northerners are dealing with large numbers of black people. And, well, what do we do with them? How do we deal with them? And, for the first time, black people have independence. Enough money to be independent from white society. And so what you get is Marcus Garvey talking about we should be separate. We should be independent. We should have a we should have black everything. So black baseball, black banks, black Wall Street, black separate. We should be separate and self-sufficient. You get the creation of black literature for the first time. Langston Hughes in poetry. W.E.B. Du Bois in philosophy. And most famously, Louis Armstrong and Billie Holiday in music plus radio equaled celebrities. For the first time since Frederick Douglass, you have African-American people who are famous, wealthy, throughout the country. Well-liked throughout the country. I mean, there are racists in Indiana who, who bought Billie Holiday records. Louis Armstrong records. So... These new technologies of, 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 of consumption, the record player, radio, which now 
broadcast everywhere for free, created African-American celebrities for the first time. You also get urban liberalism and female liberation. Now, as people poured in the cities in 1920, 1920 was the first year more people in America lived in cities than lived in the countryside. So the country was changing. We were no longer a rural country. But the culture hadn't quite caught up. And what you get is an urban liberalism. You've got money, you've got education, and women gain liberation. Just like everyone gains liberation in the city. Ever since Babylon, the city has, has equal liberation because it's anonymous. It equals money. So it equals independence. You're not controlled by your parents. You're not controlled by um, the bonds of local society because you could just move uptown to a whole new society. And so you get the new woman drinking, dancing. Now, the drinking is huge because the temperance movement of the late 19th and early 20th century that, that actually wrote into the Constitution Alcohol was illegal in the United States. Drinking was, was done mostly by rural women, rural conservative women. Who looked at men's drinking. They looked at, <clears throat> at men's drinking equal a waste of money plus domestic abuse. Men are wasting away their days. They're not working. Men are getting drunk and hitting their wives and their kids. Like families are being destroyed by the drink. And women are, are hoes. Women are, are sluts. Loose women drink. And so the temperance movement was to make everyone morally better, more productive, more efficient. was to get rid of alcohol. But in the cities, there's too many people. There's too much. There's too many places. So drinking never really stops in Chicago, in New York. It's, it's the same way with drugs. Same way. Cocaine, heroin, marijuana have all been illegal my entire lifetime. Yet I've always known people who can easily get any of those things. Any of those things. I go to a Bruce Springsteen's concert and it's the it's the boomers who are all smoking the marijuana. Like it's 1972 again. Where, 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 where? They can't. Remember, these are people who don't know how to, how to, how, they have to ask you how to 
use Facebook and Snapchat and save something in Word, they don't know how to make a PDF. And yet, they can get high-quality ganja? Really? Really? They're that tied in to the Mexican drug trade? To Central American drug cartels? That they can get that, but they can't turn something from a Word file to a PDF and then make it in an attachment in an email? You all have helped a boomer, your parents, an uncle, do something on the computer or the phone. Forget Snapchat. Like, Snapchat's a whole, like, another universe. And yet they're there, smoking up, going, boy, the run! And forget it if they went to a fish concert or a Grateful Dead reunion. And so the idea that prohibition... Prohibition didn't apply in the cities. They could try. Cops would try. and you, got, But it just moved. And you get the mobs. And you get gangs. Just like with drugs. So instead of going down to the 7-Eleven, you went down to the local speakeasy. The underground bar. And the underground bar was making a hell of a lot of money and paying off the mob. And the mob was making sure, the Italian mob or the Irish mob, the Jewish mob, was making sure that the alcohol flowed in from Canada or from Mexico sometimes from Europe, would flow in, or from states, southern states, which were still making whiskey. Not legally, but you go into West Virginia and try to find all the people making whiskey. Um, open, open all those little valleys and hollas and, and the such. You, you can't do it. And so... Um, and now that it was illegal, it was even sexier to do. Because you needed to know somebody who got you in. You didn't know the place. And so this whole new economy in urban America grew up. And women were an important part of that because women participated. It was part of female liberation. So drinking, the new woman who wasn't going to be bounded by the old rules. Dancing, and not dancing far away, dancing cheek to cheek, dancing close. Like, women have always danced. Dancing's fun. But dancing's also sexy. You need no look look no further than the tango. And people understood this through history. And so if you ever look at, like, a Pride and Prejudice show that shows dancing, dancing is a way of... Having sex in public. You're not actually doing the sex part, but it's everything, but it's the touching, it's the holding, it's the sweating, it's everything but. And it's allowed because it's the, the but part is the big part. It's allowed. You touch each other. Men and women don't touch each other. You don't touch another person you don't know. You don't touch another woman you don't know. That's for damn sure. Her husband, uh, Brothers, father will come and break your face. Oh, but dance with her? Oh, no problem. Go ahead and dance. It also gave you an opportunity to talk without other people. It gave you these three minutes of alone time. 
So sex dancing is sexy. And now women were doing it. And this was sexy dancing to black music, to jazz. Slow dancing in the blues. You also get Margaret Sanger and the beginnings of birth control. Now, birth control is seen as liberation for women. Or, I shouldn't put, put it that way. It is, but the liberal notion is it's liberation for women. What Sanger wants is to free women from free women who have already had children, from having more children. Original birth control is not for single ladies. It's for married women who have already had a couple of kids. Because Sanger looked at Irish families, immigrant families, and said they're having five, six, seven kids, but they don't make any money. So every child they have makes them poorer. If they could have less children, they could invest more in those children. It would be better for everybody. It's better for society. But what immediately happens, and we'll talk about this with the birth control pill in the 1960s, what immediately happens is single women go, uh, me too, please. Like, that's nice for married women who have already had two or three kids and they're kind of done. How about me? I'm 22. Uh, I'm going to Smith. And uh, I like to not get pregnant anytime soon. How about that? And the con so the conservative argument against birth control was it will make women whores. Sluts. They will have sex. And not get pregnant. Which means they will have sex. And that's exactly what happens. You read Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby. The Hemingway's. Uh, the Sun Also Rises. Henry Miller's Tropical Cancer. This sex, 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 sex. All over the place. In these, in these books. The stories of the 20s. D.H. Lawrence. Um, and so sex... Which is probably always in cult. It's all. It's always part of culture. It's always there. It comes to the fore, and with advertising, it gets it not only gets it comes to the fore. It gets sold and marketed. Um, and so you should see that the jazz age has this liberalism to it. You know, there's got to be a reaction, right? There's got to be a conservative, whoa, whoa. We've got black people in our neighborhood. We've got women dancing. We've got sex in our books. We've got, whoa, too much change. Even becomes more than that because you get technology, which allows for personal culture, records, magazines. You get Paperback books, cheap books, so you get more literacy. And as you get more literacy, you get more books. Photography, you get small cameras that you can carry around. Now, typewriters that allow you to make your own stories. Photography is your personal histories, who you were with, where did you go. Um, 
with the brownie, the first that's in the image, the first real small travel camera, um, travel photography exploded. Because people took pictures. The, the selfie has always been part of photography. We just now make cameras and lenses that make it kind of practical. But people always pointed the camera at themselves in front of something else. Or gave the camera to somebody else. And got a picture of them. The boring travel photo of a bunch of people standing in front of the Eiffel Tower is as old as photography itself. Because they, it's not about the art. This is on the forums uh, with photographers and people are like, oh, this is stupid. It's so boring. It's, this. It, it's not that. It's a personal history. It's the ability to say, I was there. Has nothing to do with art. It has to say, I was there. There's a picture of me in front of it. I was there. I was in Paris. I was at the Eiffel Tower. Like, if you took a close-up picture of my eye, great. Art. We could put it in a museum. And then you go, oh, that was taken in Paris. People are going to go, uh, okay, sure. But really, I was there. Yeah, okay, whatever. You show a person a picture of you in front of the Eiffel Tower, they go, you were in Paris. That's awesome. Wow. And you're like, yeah, I was in Paris. Typewriters allow you to make your own stories. You have this device on your desk. It takes space. And now you can write letters. Now, you could have done that before, but now you could do it quicker. You can write your own stories. Like, you're reading a book. And you're like, I can do this. You have the typewriter. Just go type. Sewing machines allow for personal fashion. You don't have to go to a tailor or a seamstress. You could do it yourself. You could make your own dress. Now, increasingly, you can go to the store and buy cheap clothes. You could always buy expensive clothes, but now you're starting to be able to buy cheap clothes at department stores and such. But you could also make your own. And you could go, hey, I want to be a fashion designer. I want to make my own clothes. Before, you didn't have the technology. Now you do. So technology got smaller and it got more personal in the 20s which allows more people to participate. The next major revolution in this is going to be the, the cell phone. The computer a little bit, but really the cell phone. Look at all the people who now make videos. YouTube is full of people. All they do is take their, out their cell phone and they talk into it. Periscope, Twitch. They plop a camera in, on their computer and boom, they're making culture. They're creating culture, personal culture. And do old people poop on it? Yes, they pooped on it in the 20s. They're going to poop on it in the 2000s. Young people's culture is always stupid and silly, especially if it's female culture. The selfie is a female art form. It's mostly women taking the selfies. So when you hate on selfies, you're hating on young women's cultural creation. 
by saying that's silly. By saying that's silly, you're saying young women are silly. So more people create more art and more culture. It becomes more democratic. And you get the democratization of language, of ideas, of stories, of things. They suddenly become obtainable. You could save up money. Even if you were a poor person, you could save up money and buy a brownie camera. Kodak will make one cheap enough. It was always expensive. It wasn't like it was nothing. It wasn't like going to Wawa and buying a York peppermint patty. But you could go, I'm going to buy one of those. And you could save up for one. And Kodak would even help you. Just like Ford would with, with financing. We'll give you a little loan. Help you buy it. Pay it off in a couple years. They became obtainable. The records, record players, were obtainable. But the camera is a good one because Why? Because you couldn't afford a personal portrait by a professional painter like kings and nobles could. Even in the 20th century, that's too expensive. Like the Obamas just unveiled their Smithsonian um, portraits for the portrait gallery, the National Portrait Gallery. They were painted by... Professional artists. Do you know how much one of those pieces go by one of those professional artists? Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Millions of dollars. You can't afford that. You can't afford his time. Now Obama's the president. And this is going to be the, maybe the most famous piece of art either of these artists are ever going to work on. So they took a hit. But they're not going to take one for you. You know, but all that time, all that money, all that time that requires a person to sit, to trace, to draw, to talk, to to do, to figure out what the painting's going to be, all that takes money. People didn't have it, but the camera, which could accomplish something just as good, if not more realistic, they could afford. And so it was a democratization of ideas, of stories, of language. There's a great line from The Sun Also Rises where Hemingway's character is, is thinking about life. Either you paid by learning about them or by experience or by taking chances or by money. Enjoying living was learning to get your money's worth and knowing when you had it. You could get your money's worth. The world was a good place to buy in. That's the 20s. That's how people felt about the 20s. Mr. Banks, in our Mary Poppins example, in 1910, is an upper-middle-class banker, which means he has an education, which means he's got a job that's paying him 125000 plus a year in equivalent money today, probably more, probably more like two fifty, but at least one hundred twenty-five. He lives on a park. 
So he lives in a good part of part of London. He lives in London as opposed to Crewe or some other part way outside of London. So we're up in the Midlands. He walks to work, so he lives in the city. Life was good for him. But look at Dick Van Dyke. The itinerant chimney sweep. Oh, and make no doubt about it. World War I happens. Mr. Banks doesn't go to war. He's too old. Bert goes, and Bert is killed in the Battle of the Somme. If he's not, doesn't die from dysentery. In 1914. Bert's definitely killed. By 1915, he's been in the army year, he's definitely killed at the Battle of the Somme. He has like five different jobs. It's one movie. He's painting pictures on, on chalk on sidewalks. He's a chimney sweep. He's itinerant. He's constantly doing different jobs. He's hustling. Do you think he doesn't? He, he, he does. He doesn't. Uh, it's amazing they allow him in that part of the city, the same part of the city as Mister Banks, to keep running into Mary Poppins. Now him and Mary had a little thingy thingy. You could see that back in the day, but he's a little too familiar with Mary Poppins, nineteen ten, to not have a little something something from back in the day. A little personal connection. But he doesn't go back to a flat in London full of a typewriter where he's writing out his great novel. A camera to record all the events. Crazy-ass events that he's taking part in. No. He doesn't have any of those things. But in the 1920s, he could. Not maybe him, but... An ordinary worker could. Conservatism, especially in rural America, rural Europe, freaked out. We kind of hinted at this, freaked out about this. And kind of the most long lasting part of this is the how you going to keep them down on the farm song. So, Reuben Reuben, I've been thinking, said his wifey dear, now that all is peaceful and calm, the boys will be back on the farm. Mr. Reuben started winking and slowly rubbing his chin. He pulled his chair up close to mother and he asked her with a grin, how are you going to keep them down on the farm when they've seen Paris? How are you going to keep them away from Broadway? Jazzing around, painting the town. How are you going to keep them away from harm? That's a mystery. They'll never want to see a rake or plow. And who the deuce can parlez-vous a cow? How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? Rural America knew it lost. Knew it was losing the fight for culture. How are you going to keep them down on the farm? Rural America sucks. It's necessary, but it sucks. 
It doesn't compete with Paris, New York, Chicago, jazz, money. Rural America is work. Back-breaking labor, fixing the fences. Oh, and let's not get, get along this. You come home from World War I, you do not want to look at another barbed wire fence for the rest of your freaking life. Because when you charged across no man's land and ran into a barbed wire fence and couldn't get across it because it was barbed, very reason why it works, you got shot by machine guns. Thank you very much. So imagine going home and being like, oh yeah, son, go fix the barbed wire fence. You, no, no, no. I'm going back to New York where I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to get a job. I've seen Paris. I've been around women. I've been jazzing around. Jazz. Painting the town. Drink. Having fun. Now, if conservatism says, how are you going to keep them away from harm? How? That's the problem. Is it going to get themselves in trouble? Young men with money get themselves in trouble. That is, I, we've done, if you've taken my course since History 101, you know that is true. And what happens when all the young people leave? This is going on right now. This is the problem of conservative America in the United States right now in 2017, 2018. This is the problem. The 2016 election was full of rural people going, all the young people are leaving. They go to college and they don't come back. So the town is dying. Western Pennsylvania is full of these towns. Central Pennsylvania is full of these towns. All the young people leave. Why? Because they've been to Paris? Yes. Not maybe physically, but on their phone, on their television. They've been to L.A., New York, Chicago, Paris. They've, they see a world. They are connected to a world. You can still go down to the local bookstore and get yourself a magazine, Vanity Fair, Vogue, that says this, look at the world outside of your shitty little town. And conservative rural America freaks out. It can't compete with that. It can't. It's not sexy. Rural America can't compete with the world, with New York, with Chicago. And so you get temperance. Alcoholic drinks break up 9,200 homes a year. Money spent for booze cannot be spent spent on shoes, cannot buy shoes. For the children's sake, vote no on liquor on September 11th. So you get prohibition. Morality and rural Protestant values. The cities are full of blacks and Jews, but rural America is full of proper Christians with proper Christian values is the way conservative America looked at it. It's also, the cities are also full of those Italians, those Catholics, Italians and Irish, and they are drunks. They drink. They're immigrants. 
They're new. They're brown. They speak weird English at best if they speak English. So you have the advent of rural Protestant values, this new morality that's tied to rural Protestant values. Christian, what we would call Christian values, remember? And you don't remember, but I remember. Some of you will remember the 90s, you know, family values. That's this. The family values they talked about was rural Protestant Southern American values. Not New York values. They, in fact, told you it wasn't New York values. New York is full of gays and Jews and blacks and Catholics, and it's full of sex and sin. It's not family there's no families in New York. And you're living in New York going, wait, oh, what, what? But that's the idea. So the 90s was the same thing. And you could still hear it. If you turn on conservative radio, that somehow rural America is... Uh, Sarah Palin did this when she was running for vice president in 2008. And Conservatives do this. I'm so glad to be in real America with real Americans, with real American values. She said that over and over again in rural America. Not in cities, not in the North, but in the Midwest and the South. In rural rural countryside meetings, it was anti-Catholic in the twenties and anti-immigrant. That's the nineteen twenty-four Immigration Act, which was to get rid of brown people, essentially, Eastern and Southern Europeans, to keep America more white. Um, so when you hear Jeff Jeff Sessions in twenty eighteen say <clears throat> the model. We should have his 1924 when we created quotas. He is telling you. He is. He, he, that's a dog whistle. That's a woo about keeping America white because the 1924 Immigration Act was specifically to do that. It was anti-youth. Not married men or now women caused trouble, caused problems. See, if you go back to your Pride and Prejudice in 1800, all of the all of the women in the family in Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility, let's be, you know, in a lot of Jane Austen, they want to get married. That is their goal. Elizabeth not being married at 20 is a problem not because of how she acts, But because there's not enough men, we got to find a man for her. She wants to get married. She is a good girl. But now, now, 1922, we have naughty girls doing naughty things in the big old cities. So women and kids not getting men and uh, boys and girls not getting married is going to cause trouble. Mostly sexy, sexy trouble, but it's going to cause trouble. So... Prohibition was the way for rural America to control urban America. By saying, we have better values, we are better people, we are more honorable, we are uh, less 
uh, addicted to sex and drugs and and bad things, we are better people. It was prohibition became the way for rural America to impose its values on urban America, which it was terrified of. The song "How Do You Keep Them Out on the Farm When They've Seen Paris" is exactly that. How how can we how can we live in this world where we're going to lose? Well, what we do is we we shackle the cities and make them more like us. Conservatism was also anti-capitalist, which will blow people's minds. But in the 1920s, yeah, because capitalism was the cities, was liberal. It was all this money, and it was income inequality that destroyed morality. The banks ruined farms. They sold you quick mortgages that you couldn't pay. That income inequality destroyed morality. The most liberal places in America were actually the Midwest in the 1920s. They're the cities, yes, but the most anti-capitalist, I should say, progressive, economically progressive places were the Midwest. Because they looked at this income inequality, which is how the cities were operating. Like Some people were making lots of money, lots of people were living in poverty, and they didn't like it. They said America had this awesome past when everyone was a farmer. Now, that was never true, never true, but it's the mythology. If everyone could go back to being an independent farmer, they'll be good people again, moral people again, and there won't be all this money. It is astounding. Blow your mind. Astounding. That the most capitalist state in America, the one with the least restrictions, the lowest taxes, the, the least regulation, is Kansas. The one that's the most like out of something Adam Smith might have, might have tossed away. Because he was, a, he was a moral philosopher, so he would have written it and went, yeah, we need to have more protections for people in this is Kansas. That's not the, their grandparents, their great grandparents, the grandparents who of the people who are making these laws would their minds would explode. If anyone had ever, even if their grandkids had ever come to them and said, you know what we need, mom, we need banks to be able to loan whatever they want to at whatever prices they want. Uh, and make up whatever they want to do. That would have just blown blown their minds. Because in the 1920s, they looked at the merchants of death, which are the most famous group. The people who made money, the companies that made money off the war in Europe, made ungodly amounts of money. They got made money off the murder of other people. Like tobacco companies today, like increasingly gun companies gun manufacturers today, they were seen as bad companies, immoral companies. Not in the cities, but out in conservative America. And what conservatives want and what was sold to them was a return to normalcy. Which was 
for urban conservatives, pro-capitalist. And see, now we get we start to get look at that because that's the beginnings of the modern Republican Party right there. The connection of rural conservatives, rural social conservatives, rural moral conservatives with pro-capitalist urban conservatives. That's the modern Republican Party. It's going to be anti-socialist, anti-welfare state, anti-income taxes to pay for that welfare state. It wants to take America back to 1910. Now, rural conservatives might want to take it back to 1810, but urban conservatives want to go back to about 1910, before the income tax came in, before you got all of this new government that Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican, brought in. The progressives brought in. Now the progressives brought in because they were watching America, urban America, crack. There are too many poor people. There's too much inequality. There's too much power in giant companies. But conservatism... These urban conservatives plus social, moral conservatives, rural, moral conservatives are going to become what is now today the modern Republican Party. Um, notice that anti-capitalist, socialist, anti-income inequality group, they got wiped out. There's no place for them to go. And they don't exist. This is how you get books like What's the Matter with Kansas? What happens is those people either became Democrats, part of the Democratic Party after 1964, and stayed anti-capitalist. And if they went all the way to the left, they became Bernie bros. Or they chose between morality and family values and... They're anti-capitalism. They chose between one or the other. Were they more anti-capitalist or were they more about Protestant rural values? And in the South and the Midwest, they mostly went that way. They went towards the morality values, the rural values, and they became, in 1994, for the most part, Republicans. Sorry, 1994, and since they basically became Republicans. So that group in the middle... That anti-capitalist, vaguely socialist, pro-welfare state group of rural Americans has essentially been wiped out in America today. In our two-party system. That brings us to the international world of the 1920s. And that will be our next... um, episode. Thank you. Have a good day.